0: Hey everybody, this is Jeff from Startup Sack with another Sacramento Startups Podcast Founder AMA episode. Our October Startup Sack Happy Hour at Granite City Coworking in Folsom featured a panel, Ask Me Anything, with John Bedrozik and Beth Dodson, co-founders at Homezada and Kevin Kane, CEO at Linked. In this podcast, the three of them share their entrepreneurial journeys and field questions from the audience about running a successful, high-growth startup. Check it out.
1: Thank you all. My name's John Bedrzejczyk. I'm going to give you my life story maybe in one minute or less. Uh, That's uh, so it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> Try to make it brief. Um, I got a degree in mechanical engineering, went to go work for a construction company, started a software company when I was 26. I had no idea what I was doing. Still don't know what I'm doing, but that software company went full life cycle from startup to raising capital to eventually selling, um, and then became a passionate entrepreneur and decided to do another startup company called Home Zotta and that was probably only 45 seconds, so that's kind of a brief
0: overview. Here you go.
2: I'm Beth Dodson. I'm one of the other co-founders in Home Zata. I My background, I'll do it also in one minute or less. Um, I actually am from the Baltimore area of the East Coast, and so go Orioles, unfortunately. Um, go Ravens just saying. Um, but uh, I was in tech, and I fell into it by happenstance. I was in the banking industry and got an opportunity to go into tech. Loved it. Um, met John and Kevin, because I've worked with them both in uh, at Meridian, and then also started Hamzada, and we'll get into that more.
3: Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. I don't like mics, so I'll be talking. Um, so Kevin Kane, I'm from Sacramento as well. Um uh, entrepreneur, I've done six startups, five liquidity events that I was a, a lead sales guy in with like HP, IBM, Trimble with Meridian, uh, and two private equity firms. Uh, I'm now um, part of a company called Linked. We're here in Sacramento, actually Rancho Cordova. Uh, it's kind of like Meridian 2.0. It's what Meridian was doing back in the you know, late 90s, early 2000s. It's kind of a new version of that with uh, newer platforms. So we're looking at incorporating machine learning, artificial intelligence, augmented reality, every buzzword you can find, we can do it type <laughs> of thing. And then we got real lucky with the Centene project as our first project out there in Atomos. So next time you guys drive by the old Arco arena and see this big building, that's our project. We're pretty proud of that. Perfect. <laughs>
0: and Jeff's got the first question. So my first question is because these guys were on a panel back in, I think, August or so with Mark Hating, with the sure. grand opening of, of Okay, yeah, Beth, you were here when that. No, Sherry sure was. Sure was. She so, was good. So, um, there was a question that Mark asked and he asked something to the effect of how did you know when you got over the hump and you had made it? And I really liked the way you guys riffed off the, on the answer of there is no, <laughs> there's always another hump. So, I wanted you guys to talk about that because I think it's something a lot of startup founders face or business people or anybody. How do you know when you get over that next hump? It's not. It's There's always another hump. Talk about that a little bit. Sure.
1: Uh, Yeah, my experience in in starting two businesses is the humps never end. Um, You just better be accustomed to seeing what the humps are and figuring out a ways, you know, over them, around them, or through them, and it's just a continuous process because when you start off as an entrepreneur, you have an idea. I first hump might be, Who are my co-founders going to be? I've got an idea, but I can't develop this on my own. Maybe I need a technical co-founder as a hump. Maybe your next hump is, can you launch your first product? Maybe the next hump is, can you get your first customer? Maybe the hump is, can I raise money? People think that once you raise a round of money, whether it's somebody who gave you a $10,000 check or a $50,000 check or a million dollar check, that all your humps are over. Your humps just got bigger, right? (laughs) Uh, The investors want to see that money go to work that's gonna help grow the business. They didn't invest in your money only because they like you. They actually want a return on that, so you need to kind of continue to grow that. So it's like, okay, I got one customer. How do I get 100 customers? How do I get 1,000 customers? Uh, and so um, the, my belief is the journey of entrepreneurship is the journey of the never-ending hump. Uh, and you just got to get used to it and enjoy it and thrive it. <laughs> Build That's resilience. So <laughs> Build resilience.
2: Yeah, and I think to tie into that, it's um, we had a philosophy at Meridian, both of these guys are familiar with, be comfortable being uncomfortable it's non-stop you just got to keep learning something new hiring people that are smarter than you finding ways to cross those humps get through them get around them and be as resilient as you possibly can because that's what it's going to take just sheer resilience <laughs>
3: Yeah, I'm not to bit more to add other than the fact. I mean, that you always have another hump in front of you. We all know that, you know. And I'm a sales guy, so I came up to the to the ranks of sales. And every year you did well, the next year is even harder, right? So it's kind of it's good training to kind of go. Oh, you did so well last year. We should give you a bigger quota. But really? Thanks, John. So yeah, exactly. And so that happens with investors as well, right? So you get investors coming in and saying, well, now you were doing all this stuff on a shoestring budget of, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. I just gave you a few million dollars. You can do all this much more. And so it's also the one caution I'd throw out about the humps is be very careful about the expectations you set with your investors, right? Because a lot of us come out of the gate, you know, we want to get the attention. We want to stay relevant. We want to be... Um, thought of as, you know, a visionary or whatever and that can get you into trouble because whatever you put down, they're going to hold you accountable to, right? And from a sales guy standpoint, I'm the king of sandbagging. (laughs) I love to say, I got, I may have $10 million in the pipe, but man, I can only do $3 million this year. Just give me a $3 million quote, I can hit that. No one I can maybe hit much bigger. So suggestion for you guys in startups is just try to sandbag as best you can. Don't be, don't lie. Just make sure you're being protective, so they always want to undercommit and
1: over-deliver. Okay. I'll add to that, actually. Uh, the humps are not linear. They That's don't good. come one at a time. You, oftentimes, you have four or five humps at the same time, and you have to figure out which ones you're going to try and cross versus which ones you can ignore for a while. Right? And that gets into, like, should I be building the next version, or should I be finding the next customer, or should I be getting an, an investor? Oh, yes, yes exactly. <laughs> exactly and so that it's the not only is it the you know constant uh, evolution but it's the ruthless prioritization over all the things that you should be doing but you only have the time and the mental energy and maybe the financial capacity to actually take on uh, to try and figure out how do you prioritize those obstacles to try and overcome
0: thank you first question from the audience Product I'm curious about the sales process and you brought mm-hmm. that up because I, th- I think sales is sometimes a dirty word in Ooh, startups. Never. We love it. Um, <laughs> I nice. love it. So you kept talking about uh, being a sales guy and, and having that experience. Um, what does that look like in more of a practical term? And um, What does it mean to sell throughout both to investors and both or both to investors and you're finding your next customer. You're going to
3: kind of speak to what people say. Yeah, a good good question. Um, I'll try to answer it this way. So if I don't answer your question, then feel free to follow up. But uh, so A, you're always selling, right? And, and in the startup world, you're always going to be selling, and and that's one of the challenges you have sometimes, especially when you have a. In you know, my scenario, <clears throat> my my business partner is a developer. And so he doesn't like sales, doesn't like, being, he's, uh, doesn't like being in front of a lot of people. So that's a challenge because sometimes you need them to be in front of those investors, not so much customers. So I guess the way I would I answer your question is you're always selling first and foremost. Um, and I like to subscribe to the fact that if I want to know who I'm selling to first. That's always kind of my first prerogative. So if I'm selling to a customer, and these guys know this terminology well because I talked it as much as I possibly can to the point where they told me to shut up, it's all about priority objectives. Mm -hmm. How do we understand what your key objectives are? How do you prioritize those objectives? How do you justify that priority? Then how do you measure success? That plays in anything you do. I don't care if you're buying a house. I don't care if you're investing in a business. I don't care if you're trying to sell your product. So whether you're talking to an investor... What's important to you, Mr. Investor, if, you, if you're doing most of the talking, then you know selling. Let the selling. Let the investor tell you what they're looking for in a in next investment so that you can then understand that. And you can do two things with that. If they want some high growth at 26% multiple whatever, and you're going, that doesn't fit my model for the next five years, then qualify them out and say, you know what, Mr. Investor, thank you for the time. Let's talk in three years. <clears throat> On the flip side, that investor says... I'm looking to incubate a company. I want to be part of that uh, or, uh, organic growth. Yada yada. Okay, let's talk about that further. How do you measure that? And how do you? What about this happens? So you can kind of qualify your investor to make sure they fit your profile that you know you can hit, and then you can achieve a lot of great things for that particular investor. Same with the customer. So the, the sooner you get the earlier customers on board. And one thing I say about selling to the customers is that what's so great about that process is it's imperative as a startup to really begin to build profiles of your customers. Understand the profile of this customer who wants to buy because you have a kick-ass red color versus this profile customer where they really want a kick-ass white color and this one wants a blue color. The more you can define that and put them in categories, that feeds your development strategy, that feeds your marketing strategy, that feeds your sales strategy. So it works in both those scenarios where you're talking to a customer base and trying to build your customer base. You're talking to an investor. You can start building those profiles and know who you want to attack because they fit that profile that fits your time. Does that help? Absolutely. You want to add to that?
2: I do want to add to that because um, Kevin brought this, a lot of these concepts to Meridian, which were really, really important, and they helped Meridian continue to thrive and grow, and When he talks about know your customer, it's really important that you really do know your audience. And um, Kevin is very fortunate in the industry that he's in. He has a very distinct set of people because it's a niche industry. Whereas when it comes to HomeZada, we sell to two groups of individuals. We sell to the end user customer, the homeowner, and then we also sell to the businesses through them to the consumer. And so we have to be able to sell both B2B and B2C, And then the other thing that we have, one dynamic that always gives me heartburn all the time, and I don't even know what heartburn is, um, is I have customers that are so widely varied on the consumer side that I have to actually test out a lot of marketing messages that vary depending on where they live in the country, whether they're a male or female, what stage of home ownership life cycle they're in, what they're looking for from the different types of houses they have, what age are they, and so I have to be able to test those activities and those marketing strategies as quickly as possible, and to tie back to what Kevin's talking about as well, is every time you qualify out and you understand your customer, you can actually prioritize your time, especially as a startup, because time is very finite as a startup. It's not endless, and you have to really make sure that you are targeting the most effective strategy you can for all your customers as well as for any audience that you're servicing. Mm -hmm.
1: To add to both of your stories, which are awesome, by the way. um, Thanks, John. (laughs) <laughs> it all depends also on context of your, of your business, kind of like. So when I look back at the first company that I started, which was this Meridian Software Systems that did construction project management, I, as one of it was just two co-founders, between me and the other co-founder, we basically started the company on a handshake, and he said, he'll build the product, you go sell it and market it. So essentially, I as one of the co-founders, I had never, never taken a business course in my life, and you as the co-founder, I had to go out and try and get the first customer. So I was lucky because I had friends in the industry who worked at other companies, so I'd call my friends up who were in construction project managers at other construction companies, and I would say, hey, we've got this new product. Are you willing to give me an hour of your time so I can show it to you? So then, you know, I basically, once I ran out of friends to sell, then it became harder, (laughs) right? Now I got to go sell to people that don't know you exist, they don't know your name, they don't know your brand. They're like, who are you, right? So you, as an early stage co founder, one of the founders probably has to take the role over trying to get the first set of customers. Um, And then the other dynamic is as your company grows, and I don't know enough about, you know, obviously your experience.
0: We roast coffee.
1: You roast coffee right Coffee <laughs> so, lovers everywhere absolutely <laughs> Especially in the the world. right then it then it gets back into um, marketing is so related to sales and there's a mm-hmm. huge relationship between marketing and sales and oftentimes depending on the size of the company the two get convoluted like
0: mm-hmm.
1: what do, how are you going to price your product Who's gonna determine what the price point of your product is? Is that the marketing role or a sales role or both, if you're a two person company or a 10 person company or a 50 person company? And right, that's a very interesting dynamic over how do you figure out what the pricing strategy is and how, what's the right message, right? If you're in the coffee business, you're selling a product that's pro- predominantly known to most consumers. But if you're innovating something new, you're selling something that that most customers have never heard of before. So who's going to develop that thirty-second message? that's going to resonate with that customer. Is that marketing or is that the first salesperson? What's the right pricing and messaging? That becomes an interesting dynamic over how does sales scale Mm -hmm. beyond an early co-founder into a real sales and marketing organization? There are so many um, variables to that. We could talk about this all day.
0: Laura's got a question. I'm surprised. We can talk about sales and marketing all day. <laughs> yes, we can. Yes. So
4: I'm going to ask you to back it up before back, you have something back to sell. And this might not even be that. Uh, for Homes Auto, I know you guys self-funded a lot because you had the Meridian exit. Yep. So what I hear from a lot of startups is, you know, how do I fund building my product? And they don't have a product yet, and they don't have sales yet. <clears throat> and they want investors, but most investors won't invest at that stage. What is your experience, probably going back to Meridian, um, and then Kevin, you said you've worked with a number of startups. What What do you think a founder should expect to have done before they get investment capital, and how do they get it done without investment capital?
2: That's a
3: great question. So I'll jump on in. It's very relevant for what. It. it's almost like the perfect question to ask linked. Because when we started, um, uh, we have we raised $500,000 in credits from Google, IBM, and Oracle. And I use that, by the way, in every single investment pitch I possibly can. Because, A, we were able to get $500,000 from Google, IBM, and Oracle. And, it's, and when I talk about $500,000, it's not capital, it's not cash, it's mm-hmm. credits. So to your question, Laura, which is a great question, is that there are companies who want you if you're going to be the next big thing, I want you to build on my platform. Mm-hmm. So I so as long as it's almost like you' are selling an investor it's like I'll give you credits to then use and build your platform at least your prototype on my platform and then I'll start you know charging you a little bit extra money here and there. so we literally went from Google to IBM, to Oracle for one reason cost. It became cheaper and cheaper to go from one to the other. And we just, and in a startup, we just got to keep running that out to the point where it's like, okay, if I jump everything over to Oracle now, I have this. And I fought the Oracle decision candidly because a lot of competitors in our space, Oracle has like four or five different project management systems that they've bought over the years. So they're not going to be a long-term partner for us. IBM, on the other hand, have a great facility management platform called TriRiga, and they have Watson, and that really fits in our mode. But... <clears throat> IBM got too expensive. so we had to make a jump. So the answer to your question as short as I possibly can because I'm long-winded is that you would try to figure out how you can actually get those different, whatever platform you guys are choosing, try to work with them in a way to get credits. And it's that way you can develop that rates in any capital. They don't take any uh, equity. They want you on their platform with the expectation that if it sticks and grows, you're going to continue to spend money with them. So there's a big opportunity out there to really explore credits for development. What you guys' experience?
1: Go back to Meridian. Sure. So I'd say the first source of capital is working for free, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is code for you have a current job that pays you X. You need to devote 100% of your time to contribute to building the product. You have to quit your job, which is basically working for free. Mm -hmm. So now you're impacting your personal life over, like, how am I going to afford rent, whatever your sort of personal things? because that's like a real-life situation. Um, Can you work for free is one source of capital. And for how long? The second source of capital is, do you have any money in your savings account that you're willing to contribute? Used to. (laughs)
5: right?
1: And this this was, this was my real example when I first started Meridian when I was 26, right? I had a job with a company called Turner Construction. It was making, I don't even remember at the time, 40 grand a year, whatever. I'm like, okay, I'm going to quit my job and work for free. Well, then I'm basically at 26. I knew I couldn't afford my rent in Manhattan Beach, so I went back and lived at home with mom and dad. So, so I saved money, but it... Dramatically impacted my social life <laughs> <laughs> Whistle, <right? laughs> I
0: right?
1: then I probably had saved maybe 25 grand in my my in my five years out of college right so I'm like okay I'm gonna put that into the business then I keep I kept getting pre-approved for credit cards I probably signed up for 15 or 20 pre-approved credit cards up to about five grand each <laughs> And those were my three sources of funding. And the other source of funding was my other co-founder, who was the guy writing code. He was working for free, but his source of funding was he was married and his wife had a job that was capable of supporting him. So essentially how we built our first version was my founder's wife was supporting him and and both of us working for free and both of us putting like 20 grand of our savings and both of us getting into credit card debt. Um, and essentially, and now, this gets into what I call the context. Both of my experiences were software, right? I've never been in the coffee industry or the any other sort of, like, tangible product. Whatever business you're in, you got to look at, like, what is the cost to actually launch something. Software, you know, has dramatically gone down in terms of the yeah. cost required to build software, right? Back when I started Meridian in 1994, the Internet was, still, the Internet was uh, born, but nobody had heard of it at the time, right? It was still Windows-based software. And so and the, cost, the cost to build something was significantly greater than it is today because today you can get Amazon and Google and cloud services and you pay for it as a utility based on when you need it, mm-hmm. right? So the cost to start a software company in terms of building your first product has gone down dramatically. But at the end of the day, I think that investors are going to want to see personal skin in the game before they write you that $50,000 check. They want to know that you're working for free, put your own money into the business, maybe even ask family and friends to put into the business before they're willing, because they want you because they know, the investors know that it's relatively easy to build a prototype in software. You should be able to build that by two people working for free for six months to show the investor here's what our product is. Next question.
5: Hello.
0: Hello. <laughs>
5: um, so, backtracking a little bit, we we're talking about, uh, you were talking about Beth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just when you were dealing with different demographics of how people might mm-hmm. respond, were you thinking like email lists, A B testing, according to what demographics, and then just like, using your whole email list and then okay half of the people are getting this or half of the females are getting this oh females ages 20 to 30 really like this they don't like this other email like that kind of stuff or
2: so um that question is a loaded question um so it's for out it's very complicated for some other industries, it's not. Um, I will tell you this, because um, this is a good lesson for everybody. If you think you know who your customer is when you walk in, you make assumptions, you may not be correct. So we walked in with assumptions as to who the ideal profile of a customer was for Home Zada. Mm-hmm boy, were we wrong. We were just like, what? So what we needed to do was go back and evaluate all of those customers. So we did it through all kinds of A-B testing, through message testing, through uh, pay-per-click testing. We did it through ads, through um, messaging, words. I mean, anything you can possibly think of, we tested it. And we did it in as much an efficient and guerrilla marketing way as we could, because marketing is so expensive. Because it really is, I mean, when you've got this broad base of customers and you're going to all 120 million homeowners in the US to figure out who your customer is, and you're also going to multiple generations, different locations in the US, you need to be cognizant and aware of what's actually going on. So currently today, we have a lot of fires in California. The, there's a good and a bad it's just like, this is like one of the worst scenarios like fires are just bad they're terrible, they're horrible but they benefit Hamzada. it really sounds really sad because we encourage people to take a home inventory mm. because you want to be protected with what you own and so people are rushing to do that now I don't like to be an ambulance chaser but we do try to get people prepared for that situation prior to any of these fires now When it comes to, um, and I think I'm going off track a little bit, I'm so sorry. But when it comes to testing all this, you can use social. You can use pay-per-click and really target those messages in a streamlined format so that you don't run your test for five months. You can test with your website, and we've had to do that on a variety of pages on what works and what doesn't. We've had to test email campaigns, newsletter campaigns. But all of that is a matter of our time, not necessarily a lot of cost mm-hmm. so it's been very important for us to do that and we test things geographically as well as gender wise as well as age wise etc and what we find is that micro messaging ends up working with people and so it does take a lot but then now that we know it works we are trying to get our next round of funding so that we can go and execute it and spend a lot of money on it does that answer your question yeah okay it's complicated
1: do you have anything to add to that, by the way? Uh, no, I think you do. I mean, it's just, yeah, do as many tests as you can with, with the limited amount of money that you have, if any, <laughs> kind of mentality. Because uh, it's all about validating whatever assumptions you think, you know, is the right message <laughs> and the right audience. Um, it's, it's, uh, you're going to have your base, best <laughs> theories, but until you actually see the data, what you're going to yeah. see what's going to resonate go. with one versus it's, the other kind yeah. of mentality.
0: I have
5: a question for you, Beth, on Pinterest. So I'm not mm-hmm. a B2C, so it's not relevant yep. to my business at all. But I'm just curious because I follow you, yep. and I know you're really active on Pinterest. Mm-hmm. What are the, the stats on your Pinterest? Like, what percentage of leads for new, you know, subscriptions do you get from Pinterest?
2: Okay, that's a great question because it's very targeted. So um, just to give a high level first, we Homesada is on every social platform. <laughs> We're on everything. And believe it or not, we do that because we want to test it. And one of the things that we realized was when we first entered Pinterest, we thought for sure that was going to be our market. And what we found was we had a ton of traffic hitting our site, but zero conversions. But worse yet, we saw that the bounce rate was super, 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 super high. It was like they were there for a second and it went away. And so either the messaging on Pinterest wasn't resonating with the types of users that were on there or we were on the wrong platform. And if you think about the way Pinterest operates for a lot of people, okay, so I might be aging myself. Does everyone remember like the wish book? when they were a kid. <laughs> <Okay. But laughs> the wish book, because I'd like a wish book for adults now that I'm older. So the wish book when you're a kid, I just remember that. To me, that's what Pinterest is. It's a wish book for all these people to load up all this information or it's a storage platform for people to add recipes and ideas for what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Is it a place where they're actually going to take action? In the very beginning... I can attest to this. For Hamzada, no. Other platforms were better for us. However, as time has moved on and our message has been cleaned up and has been more concise, and we're also seeing different people on Pinterest now that the years have gone by, we're seeing less bounce rate, and we're starting to see people engage more with the website. However, Pinterest is still not a big conversion for us. In fact, not a lot of social is a big conversion for us. Social builds trust for our brand, and it builds awareness for it. And this is where we can test all our messaging. Other types of um, marketing that work better for us are when we're mentioned in any kind of reliable press site. People love it. We were mentioned at MSN and Wall Street Journal and New York Times. Boom, the traffic to our site is off the charts, and people are signing up left and right. They don't even question it. The other thing that we found is valuable for us is um, these partnerships. So um, it's one of the reasons why we're a B2C and a B2B2C, because these partnerships already have a trusted brand because they built them for anywhere between 10 to 150 years. And so when they introduce us to their customers, our conversion rates are off the charts with one email from them. So, and good thing is, we've already perfected our email and our communications throughout these years. So, we take that information to um, our partners, and then that's why the conversion rates are so high. Do you want to add more to that?
1: Nope. Okay. <laughs> nope.
0: So it was long winded. So sorry, but I want no, to make sure you perfect, understood I'll get a the details. Here from the previous yeah. One. Yeah.
5: So sure. So, I'm curious, did mm-hmm. you. These are serious marketing analytics and tools that are used in order to get this information. Mm-hmm. When you only had a couple of people,
0: which of the two of you was doing this? <laughs> <laughs> we, like do <laughs> so we all you, do you it. We all do it.
5: You randomly decided which tools you were going to subscribe to at 30 bucks a month and learned how to use those tools to acquire the data?
2: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Besides? I mean, and you choose one at a time. Okay, so it's like, okay, we're talking elephants. You bite an elephant or a cow or whatever. You don't eat the whole cow at one time. You store it in your freezer, and then you pull pieces out. You test one thing at a time. If you buy half a cow like I do, you store one thing at a you, – you try one thing at a time. And then if you're smart enough, you also partner with other people. So there's three co-founders in the business. And we all leverage each of our experience in our swim lanes, and we evaluate things together. That's the first thing, because we all look at things from different perspectives. But the other thing that we do is we have contractors that we work with. So we have a social media organization that we work with. Thank goodness that we do, because I think I would pull my hair out if I had to. But they actually provide all of the actual um, content for all the sites, and they test out what best times of days to submit it, et cetera, and then we review it once a month. And that's the other thing. We review our analytics regularly. If you are not keeping track of any of your marketing analytics, your sales analytics, anything, if you are not keeping a regular track of that and you don't evaluate it year over year, you're wasting your time. I would say that as plain as you're wasting your time because you need to evaluate and you need to start seeing trends. And that's where you're going to understand where and who your customers are and how they respond.
3: So that's, good, that's You guys a question. How many of you guys are using analytics? That's great. That's good.
2: So kind of going mm-hmm. back on that, you said you partner with them or <clears throat> you subcontract? I subcontract to them. Oh, okay. But I treat them as a partner oh, for sure. because if I treat them as a partner and I give them information about homes as if they're almost an employee then they're going to do a better job for me yeah. okay. sure. next question,
0: <coughs> Sarah, you got a question me? Laura, i know you've got more questions laura. i'll throw it to laura if nobody else has a question kyle has a question um john you talked about i don't know what you call it but, the, but equity you put in personal equity you know savings credit cards yep um, That's great. I know that about
1: your guys' (laughs) stories.
2: Cheers. Lines of credits.
1: But personally, and I see this a lot at at what point and how do you determine bringing in outside? At that point, how do you determine when is the right time and who is the right partners? To bring in outside money and you know let go of your baby a little bit and all those kinds of things. Wow, that's a great question, but so many answers to that question. Um, I don't know if that, I, I can't I can't articulate one formula that works for everybody, right? Because it's contextual based on what your business is, how much capital does your business need to get to profitability. Essentially, that's what we're all striving for, right? Mm-hmm. We're we're investing something our time, our money, whatever, to build a product, to get customers to get to a point where we can be profitable, or at least break even, right, (laughs) right? Revenue coming in is the same as expenses going out, right? So, you know, and then um, because businesses are all so different, how how do you determine that? It oftentimes depends on like, well, how long are the founders capable of working for free? if you're able to work for free longer then you've got maybe more time that you don't necessarily need to bring in investors right away or how much capital is required to get to that break even point right and then even if you get to that break even point of like let's say your break even point is you know 100,000 in revenue a year and 100,000 in expenses right but your 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 goal is to get to you know 5 million a year now you may need more capital because in order to scale because Getting a business to a hundred thousand in revenue and a hundred thousand in expenses is radically different than five million in revenue and four point five million in expenses. So the need for capital, right? I mean, it goes back to you know most startups. Again, my experience is just software startups. You start with the fifty, hundred thousand dollar checks from you know friends and family, angel investors, early, and then you get to the Half a million dollar checks from either angels or early stage investors. then you get to you know two to three million dollar checks and then you get to you know 10 million dollar checks and then a hundred million dollar checks, right? So startups in the software world go through kind of this latter process over the size of the check and what they're doing with the money, given the sort of stage that the business is in. And clearly people who are raising bigger rounds are trying to scale what they think works, Um, And then people in the beginning are probably raising smaller amounts because they're trying to get to finish my product and get customers and get to sort of break even, right? Um, I don't know if there's one single formula that I can sort of articulate over when founders should look for outside capital.
2: Why don't you explain to them, too, a bit of the Meridian story as well? I know it may not be relevant for some, but it's important for people to understand that there's also an opportunity where you don't raise capital initially and then you do it at a later date.
1: Yeah, so um, the best form of capital to rate to grow your business is customer revenue.) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Right. laughs> Duh. I mean, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, you know, seriously, right? That's, that's the, as a founder, that is the best form of capital to grow your business. You don't get diluted, right? If you get, if you, if you, again, you've gone through, you had to invest time, money, and energy to build your product and service, launch it, try and find customers but hopefully you've done that and then you got to a point where you, know, you got to a million dollars in revenue but your expenses are only half a million, right? Then you got a half a million in profit. Now you can reinvest that half a million to try and see if you can get to two million or three million. So that form of capital is the best from a, from a founder's perspective. So back to what Beth was sort of reminding me was at my first company, Meridian, we were lucky after working for free for three years, Putting in personally about 25k, my other co-founder put in 25k. We probably had between the two of us 30k in credit card expenses. So that was our level of financial like in. We got to the point where we were actually break even in year two or three, um, and we were like at two million in revenue and two million in expenses. And then we were fortunate because we just continued to basically grow the business based on customer revenues. Right, we, it, uh, for lots of reasons, even outside of our control, we were the right product at the right time with the market dynamic, and all these things sort of happened. So we grew from like two million to maybe ten million in revenue, and we didn't have any outside investors. It was just that initial work for free awesome. for three years, um, and and those kinds of things. But then we got to. About 1999, the internet, the dot-com hit, right? All of a sudden we had, you know, 400 competitors raising $50 million each, and we had our customers <laughs> wanting all this additional functionality for us. Nobody survived. That's when we basically said, well, if we're going to capture the market opportunity that we have and be competitive with all these new competitors that we have, we actually do need to go out and raise money. So our first round of funding that we got which wasn't customer funding, was a $13 million round of funding that came from a venture capital investor. So if you think about, remember that I told you that ladder about the 50, million, 2 million? We were fortunate that we sort of skipped that because we had customer funding, but then we said, if we're gonna grow this thing, we need to get real outside capital. So we basically, as founders, made the decision it was time to uh, you know, give up equity in exchange for a $13 million check. I don't know if that answered your question, and or, yeah?
5: I've heard uh, machine learning mentioned a number of times tonight, Mm -hmm. returning to
3: the A-B testing. Mm -hmm. Is anybody using machine learning to train their
0: A-B testing with continuous integration?
3: Um, I brought up machine learning earlier. We're not doing it for A-B testing yet. That's a great idea, and I think it's very effective, because it speeds it up, obviously. Um, but not yet. Ours is more towards um, you know, how we can <clears throat> leverage some of the learnings from building a hospital in one location, build the same type of hospital in another location, how do you make that more efficient, yada, yada, more in that case. But it's a great point you make. I mean, uh, if you can leverage, and there are tools out there that you can help uh, deploy that will help you uh, with the A-B testing and leveraging machine learning for that for sure.
1: Yeah, we at Homesada are not either. I mean, our, most of our A/B testing is with third-party tools. Like yeah. Google's got a product called Optimize. There's mm-hmm. another th- Optimizely. You know, Mailchimp has their own A/B testing. Sure. So a lot of the A/B testing has been <clears throat> relying on third-party tools and really engaging in customer behavior for us. Um, again, part of uh, part of what we're doing though is, like Beth was saying, we are as a consumer product, we're trying to get customers to be properly insured. Part of being properly insured is take a video or photo of the things inside your house, so if your house burns down to a wildfire, you're gonna get properly reimbursed. So we are collecting a lot of this, uh, We've millions of photos that we've collected. We believe that in our roadmap in the future, we can use machine learning on what's inside those photos, and we're using some of um, uh, Amazon's uh, uh, AI video recognition technology, but we believe that we can sort of create our own machine learning on top of that data. It's just that we haven't prioritized that yet. That's something that we see doing in the future, uh, if we can, you know, scale the business to that to that stage.
0: Before you sell something, you have to decide on a price. Could you walk through the process of building a price, particularly the first time out? <laughs>
2: As we all laugh <laughs> uh, exactly. Why
1: don't you start? You have a B2C strategy. I'll, I'll hit on the B2B B side. Uh, do you want to give this one a shot or you want me to give it a shot? And you I remember did. when
2: we first the first thing we did. I, would, I will say this, I'll start off with the first thing we did. Sure. The first thing we did was, um, it's we tested how to pay for everything in our solution. So when we first launched Homzada, we launched inventory and maintenance. And just for anybody who knows about Humzada, it you track all the details about your house in the cloud. It's inventory, maintenance, projects, finances, and marketing and um, selling your home. So we first went to market with inventory and maintenance, and we actually charged for both. So we put a fee out there. I don't even remember what the original cost was, but we put it out there because we wanted to see if people would pay for the entire solution because it's easier to charge somebody up front than to um, actually say something's for free and then charge them later. It's just easier to do that, right? So people have, they build an expectation and then when you change the expectation, they get frustrated and then they could give you negative publicity. So we wanted to avoid that. So... Then what happened was we said, okay, this kind of isn't working as much. What if we went to a freemium model? We'll give away inventory for free because we truly believe that people need to protect their their belongings, and we want to help them do that. So we'll give that for free, but we'll charge for maintenance. And then as we did that, we also added projects. So we said, okay, this package is going to be XYZ, and I think our price was different too at the time. Yes. And so we tested it, and we started realizing that from a consumer play, consumers like things for free. They like sales, right? They just like sales. That's why everybody does these sales, and we're really not getting that big a deal when we go to the sales. We're just spending more money, but it's a trained behavior. So we did that, and we found that that model was actually working for us. But I do believe we were playing around with the pricing as well, and I think we were higher than what we were today, if I recall correctly, and we adjusted the pricing again. But even though we have a freemium model, now we have a three-tier model, Yes. you still have to play with the prices no matter what. So one of the things we recognized, which identified a three-tier model, was two things. Was we started recognizing that we had a lot of customers who had multiple homes, and they wanted to manage multiple homes with our product. So we're like, okay, well... Why should they get the same value that someone who's managing a single home? So we added the three tiers. So we now have Homes Out of Essentials, which is free, Homes Out of Premium, which is $59 a year, and Homes Out of Deluxe, which is $99 a year. Now, how we came up with those prices... Honestly, <laughs> we said so, what feels good. We uh, did. We said what feels we, good. We
1: did, but I can add some color to it. Okay. So, and it's, and it's and when I tell the story, you'll remember, right? So I don't know about that. We we are consumer. We're a consumer product, right? And we were battling with the whole: should it be free or should it be paid for? And essentially, what Beth was talking about was absolutely correct, right? Um, but then on the paid for piece, we basically said, well, what are other subscription price yeah. points that consumers are willing to pay something for, right? So Ancestry.com was a consumer application prior to the, even their DNA thing, just the family history, was charging like 100 bucks a year to basically manage yeah. your family history, oh, wow. right? Then there's uh, Weight Watchers, right? It, it, It was just a program of recipes that Weight Watchers wanted to pay—I don't even know—it was like eighty bucks a year, something like. Um, right. If you get a cloud storage account now, granted, Google Drive and, and Microsoft OneDrive—they're all sort of free—but if you get all their suite of apps, right? If you like want like Outlook and and yeah. the Microsoft suite it's online, 90, that's like twenty yeah. bucks a year or something like that, with unlimited storage, but gives you right. access to Outlook, Excel, et cetera, right? So we're kind of essentially saying. Triangulating in the consumer world, there are some consumers that are willing to pay Microsoft 20 bucks for a subscription to their OneDrive and all of their apps. There's other consumers willing to spend 100 bucks on Ancestry.com. People are willing to spend X on Weight Watchers. We're a tool that's kind of like, it's, you're really getting into the, what's, the, what's a, a disposable amount of income that a consumer is willing to pay for in relation to our tool as it relates to managing their house. <clears throat> And that's why Beth sort of talked about how we came up with Mm -hmm. these numbers. But it's the same thing. We A, B tested the heck out of those numbers. Right? Do we offer a monthly fee? Do we offer an annual fee? What's the what's the discount to go on the annual? Do we offer a third tier program? We've gone up and down in pricing yeah. from seventy nine to fifty nine to thirty nine, back to seventy nine, back to fifty nine <laughs> on the monthly price. We started at nine ninety five, went, went down, down to went down went to five ninety five, went up to seven ninety five. We literally have done every single iteration you can imagine to kind of basically figure out what the fine tuning of those mm-hmm. dials are. So on the, on the B2B <laughs> front, on my end, so yeah, I
3: A, <clears throat> we have a burn rate. So um, we took an approach which is basically what's our cost to get the break even. And then we have a pretty mature market, so what's the, competitive, what's the market rate right now? And we essentially displaced five different products, pardon me, with one, so if I was to do a cost analysis, and if you're going to be my buyer, you are got to buy five products to do what I do with one, which you're going to spend for that five products. Mm-hmm. And moreover, I want to seed the market, so i may even make it more attractive. So we have also fluctuated back and forth. We started with the three-tier yeah. model. And uh, what's frustrating about that in our world is that then it's hard because now you com- you're not competing, but you kind of argue with the customer as to what tier are they in. And now you're penalizing them for if they mm-hmm. grow... In, their, in, in, in size, now I gotta penalize you with a higher price. So that didn't didn't sit well as a startup. We may go back to that, we'll see. What we said instead was this is classes, so take the mean. So we had three tiers, so I take the mean number of the three tiers, we chose $89 per user per month. So now I know exactly how many paid users I need to get to to get to my break even point. What's nice about that model for us right now is that our burn is so low. So if we can achieve and be profitable on our current burn, as we grow, you can begin to then grow effectively without having to get out over your skis. Meaning I don't necessarily need to uh, uh, increase my price because mm-hmm. my growth. Because if i got volume coming, that volume is going to then fund my growth and my hard my costs. Right? So the, the simplest answer I can give you for how to re- cho- choose our pricing is, A, what's our burn, what's our cost to cover it. B, what's the market rate? And then what's an attractive enough entry price point to then get traction? And for us, it's 50% discount. So we go to customers and says, right now, you're spending, I think, $400 for these four different solutions, and with us, you're spending less than $100. And that's still hard to get traction. But you know, we're a new company, so
0: yeah. that help? OK, we've got time for a couple more questions.
2: One thing before we move on to the next question. For anyone who's selling to consumers, read the book, Predictably Irrational. I think I met her. (laughs) (laughs) Just take my word for it.
3: (laughs) So, Kevin, uh, I guess I'm trying to understand who you covet. Uh, It seems the big construction projects in the the Natomas is is good, right? Uh, What role does the subcontractors, construction subcontractors play? And uh, are they a dime a dozen? Is that somebody you're... That, that's part of your network. How does that all work? Uh, great question. So, um, <clears throat> give a little credit to uh, my former colleagues over here. That when I joined Meridian, the part of that thirteen million John mentioned earlier that they raised was to funded your salary. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that's so why I retired. He just wanted to throw that in there. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> <laughs> I need to hire it's expensive sales guys. I need together to together before. <laughs>
3: <laughs> You've got to be cheap. So <clears throat> uh, at the time, uh, Prologue was the product, mm-hmm. and it was as popular in the market as, insert name here, Google, Kleenex, whatever mm-hmm. brand that really, you know people know. And so the 13 million is going towards the, now how do we penetrate the owner market, right? And this is back in when I joined the company. It was early 2000s-ish, oh, yes. 2003, something like that. Because we realized, they realized, and I just kind of came in to help exercise that vision, was um, if we start with the owners and the developers, then the GCs and the subs have to follow suit. And it's a brilliant strategy. It plays today. So back to your question. When I came on board, I came on board as an advisor for Linked, not with Linked. And the original strategy, because the original uh, founder came out of a sub market. So his family is in the sub contracting model. Mm-hmm. And so they wanted to develop, develop something for the sub market. And I came in and had to be, um, and it's great to be an advisor because I'm not getting paid, I'm just here to give you my opinion. I'm like, ah, I think you had to rethink that. Because the sub market, they're going to want to be working with the GCs and the developers, and they dictate what platform then mm-hmm. you communicate on. So if you really want to be a player, you've got to jump the shark and get up to the developer and owner. So back, So, I will tell you, however, that I think what plays really well today against our competitors. So our biggest competitor, it sounds like you might be in the market. Are you in the construction business as well? <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> yeah. Always be selling. <laughs>
3: I know. I, thought I had an order there. I know. I thought you did too. Uh, no, uh, tell so the big player in our market is a company called Procore, <laughs> and they're kind of like the unicorn. They're valued at thirteen. No, sorry, they're valued at three billion. They raised three hundred million. They started in two thousand eleven. Right, so it's a true unicorn. But they're really uh, GC play. And so the, the subcontractors hate them because not only are they super, 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 super expensive, it's not intuitive, it's hard to use. So we're going after, and I'm pulling the page right out of Meridian's page book back in the 1990s era, which is how do you have this ecosystem that you service everyone is. Um, a player, so we're, we believe our model right now is we absolutely target the, the, the developers and the owners, absolutely uh, hands down, that's our target. Owners, developers, GCs, period. However, we also had done the analytics as well, which I asked the question earlier. For every commercial project, you wanna build this hotel or this area here, on average, you're gonna have one owner, you're gonna have AGC and probably 30 subs. Yeah. So our model is, we have a viral coefficient component to this thing. So as a GC send out submittals and RFIs and whatnot to help build this asset, that we can actually capture all those people they're sending that out to. So they begin to become familiar with our platform, how how easy it is to use. We believe part of our growth is we can get 10% close ratio off that 30 subcontractors. So if we can get for every project, the owner and the GC, and three of their subs, and then it grows from there, your customer acquisition cost goes way down. So you help them keep your costs down. So, long-winded answer to say we target owners, developers, but the subs are absolutely relevant for us because if we can get their adoption, they're the ones who talk to other people They say, you better be on this platform because if you want to get the rail yards jobs, something we're working with. You want to get the waterfront, something we're working with. You want to get Aggie Square, something we're working with. You better know Link because Link is the platform being used for those projects.
0: Okay. Before we ask the last question, are you guys going to be around at all for a little bit after yep. we have questions? So I drink
1: have, beer, so
0: yeah. you yeah. Yeah. It's often.
2: He needs
1: a beer. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Laurie, you willing to go for here?
1: You can go. More questions, too. Did you got
5: yeah. a question sure, over here? Yeah. Okay. <coughs> you guys um, mentioned a bit, uh, the price fluctuation in trying to find the, the right one for your audience. Within that, what was? What did you mask that? Did you, or did you? within a guise of a sale, a promotion, or was that sort of just, um, (laughs) how did you mitigate the frustration between a new user coming to your platform and seeing a a, a changing price at different given times? Did you use something? Did you not? What was the strategy? (laughs) Aren't we still figuring
2: that out? So,
1: yeah, it's, an, it's, it's another never-ending journey. I, I guess the answer to that question is whenever we made price changes, it was always from that point moving forward.
4: Yeah, right, we that,
1: never, we yeah, never impacted people who everybody. signed up under a previous pricing plan. So it was almost like a, they call it a grandfather approach, right? Mm-hmm. So if you came to our site and bought the product at this, at, on this day, right, and we changed the pricing in the future, we're still going to honor that. Now, that does create the added dynamic of sometimes our future pricing went up or down, mm-hmm. meaning we, some people may have bought it like $10 a month, but our pricing after that was $6 a month. So do you go back and basically refund everybody? We took the approach of no, we just you bought it at that t- point in time. It's the same as if you were to go to, yeah. you know, Dick's sporting good and buy That's a pair correct. of Nikes. If and you it bought it on today like and it was six bucks, sixty bucks and you went back to the store the next day and it was forty bucks. I'm
5: just wondering because that works great for or that works fine and understandable for B2C to, B2B to C. Mm-hmm. Yes. 2 B2B, if you have a wholesaler who's coming back to you and you chase your pricing on retail and that were <laughs> important to your pricing via wholesale 50%, or whatever percentage whatever. Do you change it? Do you not? They're somewhat grandfathered so, in. Do you kind of transfer
2: that on We've the had cost? that happen recently Yes, with a B2B customer and we document mm-hmm. um, price points mm-hmm. at those dates
4: mm-hmm.
2: and then if there's and this came back with one of our B2B customers they wanted to change The situation, and I'm like, we're not giving them a discount on what they've already purchased. The contract was always done and said, we will give discounts moving forward, but we need to reflect it in our pricing quote. And that's one of the things we're very clear on. And I think we learned that too, being at Meridian. So the unfortunate part is construction is a very litigious. Uh-huh. organization or industry and it's also, it's a constant <laughs> negotiation. You just expect to negotiate negotiate because that's what they're trained to do. But and, and there's other people here who've been at Meridian, they've heard the stories and they've been there in some of those situations. And we've been called all kinds of unique names <laughs> because we wouldn't budge on certain things or, or things just changed. And sometimes you have to just grin and bear it and say, listen, we understand your situation, we want to empathize with you. However, This is the reflection. Now, if you think that there's long-term viability with this particular wholesaler, et cetera, we also believe in the philosophy. And I think Kevin was also one of the people that introduced it to our company, was there is such a thing as a promise to buy and a commitment to buy. Now, if you want to commit to buy, there's a lot of different discounting structures you can provide that particular partner. And we live by that. I think all of us live by that today because there's different areas of commitments.
3: If I can add to that, so the... the lady to your left, to your right, is uh, our lawyer, and she's
2: awesome.
0: Michelle, <laughs>
3: and to she, she can give you a number of different scenarios. There's a term like, you know, favored nation. There's other causes that some people try to get into with you so that you always have to, like, if you do it with the state, they have this, I uh, think it's called favored nation, or I forget the term now because I'm not a lawyer, but where no matter what happens, if you do change your pricing from a B2B standpoint, that the state or Fed, or oh, it's like a GSA contract or CMAS, which is a federal contract. GSA, CMS is California, that no matter what happens, they get a, their discounts preserved, whatever new pricing you now have introduced. And they hold you legally accountable to that. So if you don't abide by that term, then come back for penalty. So it's going to be Lyria for that. That's point one. Point two is I think the market's changed a little bit, where when you get into when we were at Meridian, uh, we had, you know, it was, it was, we were selling. You know, uh, three-year contracts. It wasn't the subscription mm-hmm. model wasn't really there. We, I think we were one of the. I think Meridian was one of the first companies that talked about application service provider, wasn't the yeah. ASP models, yeah. this is what it now is hosted, right? SAS. SAS, yes. SAS. yeah. SAS, <laughs> ASP, cloud. So, um, but my point on it being is that when you have a subscription model, it gives you flexibility for your pricing. Mm-hmm. So with adoption, with increased adoption, <laughs> you want to stay ahead of your, com- your, your competitor. And in my world, different from b to c but in my mm-hmm. world, if I want to stay ahead of my competitor, I know I can beat them on price because they have so bloated and they have older, yes. they have a lot of tech debt and a lot of other stuff they got to do. be accountable for, we don't have that. So as we grow, my intention is is that our pricing point right now is kind of preserved for the Sacramento market. I could go up if I leave the Sacramento market, but I may not if I want to continue my growth, right? So the changing in pricing can be done on a subscription model. It's just how you communicate it. And then I'd also suggest you talk to Michelle because she's a wizard, that kind of stuff. I appreciate that. Thank you. I did it on, I did it on Goodwill because it's my best like, wholesaler,
5: and I just did it because they just, they were going to pay whatever, but I did it. And I just wanted to know, like, am I going to make that the standard? Or am I not?
3: Not just, you know, yeah. whatever, but they're my yeah. best wholesaler, so I like, do you goodwill? Yeah, but mo- and most companies, they've they, they all been in your shoes. They've all been startups before, Everybody's right? So <laughs> this goes back to, I think, when they said earlier, is that who you surround, who, the earlier partners understand where you are in your growth mm-hmm. sector, that they usually become pretty amenable for that, right? So like They know you're trying to grow, <laughs> so we'll, we'll give you a little bit of a break. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you. So.
4: All right, I'm going to wrap things up, but I always like to ask the last question. But before <laughs> I do that, I'd just like to know um, how many of you currently would consider yourself a startup founder? Just raise your hand, keep it up. For those of you who don't have your hand up, no, keep your hands up, keep your hands up. How many of you are considering becoming a a founder or an entrepreneur who don't have your hand yeah, voice yeah, yeah. So quite a few of you. If you go to a lot of these events, you'll discover, uh, you can go ahead and put your hands down, there is no one recipe for having a successful startup. If there was, then it wouldn't be so hard, right? That's correct. And launching a company is hard, and a lot of people don't survive. But the three of you have launched more than one company. You came back to it for more punishment. <laughs> and yes. my... Uh, so you're all serial entrepreneurs. And th- this is going to be... I'm going to ask you each for uh, two questions with one-word answers.
0: Mm-hmm. Good okay. luck, so, uh, Do it. The quest
4: So the first question, uh, what is the thing that... You most regret having to give up to be have, be a startup founder. One word.
3: Time. Time. With, with family.
4: Time with the family.
3: So, so I have three-word answers, I know. But yeah, okay, uh, you,
2: you can um, take it. You can. Mine is for a different well. reason, but salary.
4: Salary.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. John. Ah. Uh, do I have to give you two answers since I've done two? Two I
2: companies?
4: No,
5: just one.
1: See, look, I was negotiating.
5: He <laughs> meant to make it.
2: What'd you say?
1: My, my? <laughs> it's not a one word, My my fun in Manhattan Beach. <laughs>
4: Social. Media, right? yeah, <laughs>
1: social. <Yeah. laughs>
4: so, so that's the, the downside, right? Early days you might be giving up uh, some security benefits, time with family, time with friends. Yeah.
1: Fun. 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 Yeah. Yeah.
4: So here's uh, the next question What is one strength that you have that you think is important to have a successful startup?
1: Easy. Resilient.
4: Easy. Resilience. Scrappiness. Scrappiness. Self learner. Self learner. All very good. All very good. So uh, I hope you guys can take away that both those things what you might have to sacrifice to have your own company, what kind of characteristics might serve you well. Um, and then also, all three of you have had successful startups. So that's kind of the, the um, pot at the end of the rainbow, right? But there's always another rainbow, right? So and
0: another hump. <laughs> what? Another
4: hum, right, another right. Time's right. Anyway. On. Another rainbow, but not always another unicorn. So um, thank you very much. Kevin Kane from Lee. Thank you. Johnson from Arizona. And John DeGrosa from Arizona. So we hope you'll join us